This is 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you would turn there in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'll read out from verses 1 to 5. Hear God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is God's word. Amen. Let's take our seats. I suppose we are all aware that friendships work in different ways in different contexts. And as we look at this uh, second in our series on relationships, last week we looked at family and this week we're looking at at friendship. Uh, We're all aware that different kinds of people have different ways of relating and even different cultures have different ways of relating. And friendships work in different ways. In different ways, in different cultural contexts. I, this was first uh, dramatized for me when I uh, lived in a country uh, in the Caucasus region. So that's uh, between um, the uh, Caspian and uh, the Black Sea. There's a region of three countries there that I suppose are on the bridge between the East and Central Asia and Eastern Europe and that kind of thing. And they have a very different way of relating. And the country where I spent most of my time Friendships worked dramatically differently from the way that friendships worked in my cultural context, where I'd uh, grown up. Uh, I I remember, for instance, when we were uh, having uh, Bible studies with uh, some of the people from that context, and and the Bible study was set for, say, two in the afternoon, and uh, someone would come to the Bible study at like 2.45 p.m., you know, 45 minutes late, and for someone who was uh, grew up in London, where you know time was money. Uh, to be 45 minutes late for a meeting, there must have been some disaster that took place. I mean, you know, five minutes late would be late, but 45, and we were just absolutely flummoxed that the one of the standard excuses for being so late was this: my friend needed me. And us Westerners sort of looked at each other going like, what? But all the other people from this cultural context just go, oh, okay, of course. My friend needed me. And the way friendships uh, worked were quite, quite different. I learned a lot from it. Uh, though some of the, the ways of greeting were particularly um, different from the, certainly the London context. So men from that uh, culture, when they greeted each other on the streets, you'd see young men who'd be sitting around and chatting, and they'd see a friend uh, come up to them, 
and uh, they shake them by the right hand, which would be, of course, fairly standard, but then their left hand would go behind their friend's head, and they both come together and kind of cheek bump, kiss men, strong macho men, you know, military men. And, um, you know, this took a little getting used to, I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> trying to get familiar with that cultural context, we did get used to it. I remember uh, coming back home, and I was um, going back to our, my home church at the time. I grew up in the Church of England, and it was a, a, a very kind of typical Church of England church. Um, in the suburbs of London, and the vicar, uh, as they're called, the pastor was, uh, I think he's still alive, a wonderful, godly man, uh, but quite traditional in some ways as a person. And after I went to the service, I went to greet him after the service. I hadn't seen him for a long time. And um, I was still in my mind back in that other cultural context. And so I, I put my right hand out, which he sort of accepted, and then my left hand <laughs> started to go behind his head and sort of pull his head towards mine. And fortunately enough, otherwise World War III would have broken out, I think, um, I uh, managed to look up and saw the look of horror in his eyes <laughs> as we were getting closer. And um, I averted like a... A jumbo jet pulling up at the last minute. So when we talk about friendships, we have to be aware that there are different personalities. Some people are introverts, some people are extroverts, there are different cultural contexts, uh, different stages of life. Um, friendship is, I think most people would say, easier to um, begin at university, college students here will find that it's a great time to make and keep friends. And then when you get into the, to the, the heat of the, of the, of the midlife, when you're married and you've got kids and you, you work all day and then you get home and you're with your kids and it's 11 o'clock and you go to sleep and you, you've got friends somewhere out there, but the truth is you, it's so hard to find time. So all that affects things, of course. And yet, I think, this story, this famous story that we just had a little bit read out for, and I'm going to put it in its larger narrative context for us this morning, uh, this famous story of David and Jonathan and their friendship is indicative of what friendship means across all cultural contexts. How it points us to a larger spiritual reality and how friendships are most healthy within that larger spiritual reality framework. And I, what I think uh, the author here is telling us is he t tells us the story of David and Jonathan and there are many different themes that will seem, as we'll see throughout the book of Samuel, this being one of them. It is that our friendships are healthy when they're focused upon God's anointed king. I'm going to walk us through that and then apply it. Now, just before we do that, why should we think about 
friendship. Let me just give you a couple of quick reasons. The first reason is while there are all sorts of different cultural contexts and different stages of life, most sociologists would observe that friendships in America are in a state of profound decline. And that's not just because we have quote-unquote Facebook friends that we all know are not, you know, I, mean, I don't know how many friends I've got on Facebook, but it's thousands. And of course, well, if you're one of my Facebook friends, we really are friends, of course, you know. <laughs> but um, it's not just the social media thing. It's been going on for a long time. So since 1990, a survey was done of Americans who uh, self-reported that they had no friends. Only 2% of Americans in this survey would self-report that they had no friends. By 2021, that had increased to 13%. Now, just think of that. Roughly 1 in 10, slightly over that. 13% of Americans would say, in a moment of honesty, when asked in private, in a survey, they had no friends. None. That's an extraordinary thing. And by the same token, those who would say they have many friends, the same survey would show has, has massively declined. So those who have no friends is, is hugely increasing, and those who have significant number of significant friends is declining. So the, and there have been other studies, famously the book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam in 2000, described this, this ongoing, long wave of declining friendship in any significant sense. And of course that's an issue. Uh, one study was done in 2017 showing that the political fragmentation that we're all experiencing may have at a, at, at, at a contributing, a contribute, significantly contributing factor may be just the simple fact that we don't know each other. We don't have friends. Not really. And so the significance of it and the mental health factor, you talk to counselors uh, they, 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 and they're being honest with you. A lot of them would say that a lot of their work would be, they'd be out of work if people had friends. Uh, that, that's putting it too extreme. But certainly friendship is a hugely important part of mental and social health. And so we need to think about that together. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. Now this passage, as I said, is just one excerpt from this famous story about David and Jonathan's friendship. You'll see that, they, uh, that Jonathan loved uh, uh, David as his own soul, uh, v- uh, verse 1. Um, and uh, the friendship uh, of, of, of David and Jonathan is storied and famous for the way that Jonathan gave himself to David to protect David. Uh, later in the story, it describes how, how when David was particularly depressed and discouraged, Jonathan took the huge risk given Saul, the king's antipathy and indeed um, um, hate by then of David. Uh, Jonathan took the huge risk to go to David and, as it says, uh, strengthen his hand in God, which is a sort of roundabout way of saying that they, they encourage one another and, and encourage David to stick with God and follow God. And so this, this storied friendship here is, is profound, but to really understand what it's about, you have to put it in its larger narrative arc. 
of the story of the book of Samuel. And I say the book of Samuel because Samuel is really one book. In our Bibles, it's split into first and second Samuel, but really it's one book. And one way to understand what that one whole book is about is to think of it as two songs with a prophecy in, in the middle. And the first song is the song of Hannah. And you can turn to it if you like in your Bibles. It's 1 Samuel chapter 2. You don't have to. But Hannah, who of course is the mother of Samuel, after which the book of Samuel is named, though Samuel was not the author of the book of Samuel, because we know that because Samuel is described as having died in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So no, he's not the author. Um, but it's named after him because he was the prophet, uh, the, the judge in the time of the judges as it shifts later to the kings and the kingdoms of Israel. Uh, you have Eli and then Samuel. And Samuel's the one who anoints Saul and then David. So hugely influential figure, hence the story is named after him. Hannah tells in her song of the wonder of what God has done for her and giving her this special child, Samuel, and she, but she tells it in a way that is hugely surprising because what it's really about is the king, the anointed one, what uh, in Hebrew is the Messiah, the Christ, the horn of his anointed, who will be humble and faithful. So that's setting the, 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 the trajectory of the story. And then right at the end of the story, 2 Samuel chapter 22, the, the other song, David now is singing. And David sings, mirroring, mirroring Hannah's song. Now people will tell you that these, these texts in the Old Testament are sort of randomly put together. And there's no narrative arc. They need to read the Bible it, as a story. Amazingly, the author of, of, of Samuel then has David singing this psalm about the horn, which is a symbol of strength, the horn of his anointed, the Messiah, the king. So they've got those two songs in the middle. In 2 Samuel 7, and I, if you do have a Bible, I will, will ask you to turn this one up. 2 Samuel 7, you have the prophecy of uh, Nathan the prophet and in the story uh, David has come to Jerusalem he's won the great victory he's in the capital city he's now the king and he wants to set up a temple for, for God and he's told by Nathan no you're not to set up a physical house for me God says but instead God will give you David a house that is a line of kings but note carefully how Nathan's prophecy Puts it. So, chapter 7, verse 12 of 2 Samuel, when your days, that is David, uh, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring or your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so that sounds like Solomon, the, the son of David, uh, you would think. But here, listen carefully. I will take him a father, and he shall to be in me a son. Uh, and then it carries on, verse 16, and your house. And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Well, Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. Nor did the physical kingdom of David. Indeed, your throne shall be established forever. 
So the book of Samuel, written, as I think, after the the kingdoms of Israel split into two. You can see indicators of this. For instance, it says a certain thing took place um, in, in chapter 27. It describes that a certain thing took place, and it was like that up until the days of the kings of Judah. Well, that's the split of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. It's split into two then, and so it's indicating it's after that. And the book of Samuel is saying, who is the rightful king? The rightful king is God's humble and faithful anointed one. It's a message calling on God's people to follow his true king. But ultimately, in the book of Samuel, that true king is the king who is establishing a kingdom forever. And so the story of Samuel has a further horizon in the context of the Bible. And in the context of the Bible, again, if you have a a Bible open, turn with me at Luke chapter 1. The context of the Bible, the famous Magnificat of of Mary in Luke chapter 1, and you can go home and see this, much of Mary's song mirrors Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2, and particularly uh, the, the theme of humility. Verse 52, for instance, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And this is to, well, the seed of David and ultimately the seed of Abraham. Forever. The kingdom forever in the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who we Christians believe is Jesus. So now we come to this issue of friendship and that larger narrative arc. And what the Bible is teaching us here about friendship is our friendships are spiritually healthy when they focus upon his anointed king, which is exactly what Jonathan does. So look back with me at 1 Samuel 18. As I said, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, some of you may be aware that there's been a lot of speculation in sort of uh, the nether nefarious regions of biblical teaching as to what exactly was the nature of David and Jonathan's friendship. Was there anything romantic about it? But that's to misunderstand love in the Bible. Yes, he loved him. The author is very careful to say it was a soul love, not a physical love. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But what is more, in the context of uh, chapter 18, everyone seems to be loving David. Uh, Verse 16 says, but all Israel and Judah loved David. They all loved him. This isn't romantic love. This is humble, faithful commitment. They were committed to David. They loved him. But Jonathan's commitment to David is especially profound in his friendship because, uh, verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David, and the nature of that covenant is symbolized with a series of, of symbolic acts. We've just had one symbolic act, a sign of conversion. 
here are a series of signs of the kingdom. So verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Well, this isn't just like his shirt off his back. This is a symbol of the, of the kingdom. Um, a, a scholar from uh, Holland uh, called Jan P. Fockelman from the University of Leiden, I think first uh, noticed this, that earlier in the story, the robe that had been torn in two when the kingdom was ripped from Saul, that same word for robe is now here used. And what Jonathan is saying is, you have the robe, David. You have the kingdom, entire and complete and uh, he uh, has other signs of the kingdom that he's giving to David, his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. All these are symbols of his office. Jonathan, of course, the son of Saul, is saying to David, no, you're really the next in line for the kingdom, David. And their friendship, which is profound is all in the context of Jonathan's astonishing recognition that God's hand was on David and he was the anointed one and therefore their relationship is spiritually healthy. His soul was knit together. He loved him in a committed friendship way because of Jonathan's willingness to surrender to the king. David, ultimately, in the context of the Bible, in a preacher sense, surrendering to the King Jesus. And then his friendship was healthy. His relationships were healthy. Whereas, of course, Saul, and the, the narrator is so amazingly clever in the way this is told, you get, you get the, the, the beginnings of Saul's jealousy. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul was thinking, well, this, this man, David, who's so popular, I've got to keep him under my eye. I need to control him. And Saul initially, verse 5, sets him over the men of war, which is probably some sort of elite fighting force, the Marines or the in an English sense, the SAS or something. These are the elite fighters. But then by verse 13, Saul's becoming increasingly jealous, so he removes David from his presence and makes him a commander of a thousand. He demotes him. No longer in charge of the elite, he's just another, another commander. Why? Because Saul will not recognize David as the anointed one, as the king. And therefore, his relationships, and indeed his mental health, are gradually destroyed. Whereas our friendships, if they are to be spiritually healthy, are focused upon um, God's anointed king, namely Jesus. See, friendship, if you're, if, if you're from an atheistic or agnostic background, uh, you may know that it's, there, there are various parts of the human condition that are very hard to explain atheistically. One of them, of course, is consciousness, 
that we think and feel and are aware. Why? But another one is friendship. What is the genetic value of friendship? And they try to answer it by saying, well, there are these in the animal kingdom, there are various family units that gather in quote-unquote friends to support them. But, but friendship, human friendship, is far more than that. And it's witnessing to the fact that we're made in the image of God, that we are spiritual, and we're made for the kingdom of God, God's anointed king. And within that context, under that umbrella, our relationships become increasingly healthy. Whereas if we remove ourselves from his loving cover as our anointed king, our relationships become increasingly like souls, fragmented, dissolved, degenerative, and even our mental health begins to spiral out of control. Sometimes you read the news today and you think, is everyone losing their mind? And of course the answer is yes. We're becoming like Saul when we need to be like Jonathan. And love the anointed king, Jesus. Now, as I said at the beginning, there are all sorts of different friendship patterns and different stages of life, so it's difficult to give really down-to-earth practical advice because you're all different. You've got different temperaments. You have different things going on. But one framework that I have found helpful is, one, is this one that is a reflection of focusing upon Jesus as the anointed king. If you, if you follow through Jesus' relationship patterns, it's fascinating that he is not equally intimate with everyone relationally. I not mean physically, I mean emotionally. He's not equally intimate, connected with everyone. Because though he's uh, fully God, as the incarnate Son of God, he's also human. And he's showing the best of what humans could be. But in that context, he's not equally intimate with everyone. And we are finite human beings, and we cannot know everyone equally well, nor can everyone know us equally well. This is one of the great dangers of constantly trying to sell yourself on social media. There are some people who need to know you better, and that means there are some people who need to know you less. Jesus related to the crowds as a preacher. His, we're in a crowd. We have a relationship with one another. It's profoundly important. But then Jesus also related to the 72, if you like, like our adult communities. There's an increasing intimacy there. But still, it's not... You're not fr- you can't be real friends with all that 72. But then there were the 12 that were Jesus' friends. 
I think that the, most people have a maximum friendship capacity of about 12. And then within that circle, there were the three that Jesus was especially close to, if we read the gospel accounts. And there was even the one, uh, the beloved disciple, John, which, of course, again, understanding love in terms of friendship and commitment would be another way of saying, I suppose you could say that John was Jesus' best friend at a human level. Now, God, who is infinite and eternal, and Jesus as fully God also, is able to relate to us with profound intimacy, all of us, all the time, which is an astonishing, mind-blowing thought. But none of us is God. And if you're to have friends, it means that some people are not going to be your friends. They'll be part of the crowd. You'll care about them. But others you'll invite into a closer place of friendship. That's one pattern that I think is helpful. To be deliberate about it, as Jesus was. Say, these are people that I can really trust and love within the context of focusing on the anointed king and under his loving umbrella in the kingdom of God. It is important, isn't it? And it is distinctive of the Christian faith, I think, this, this idea of biblical friendship. It was the Buddha, I think, who said that he who has 50 loves has 50 woes. He who has Ten loves has ten woes, and he who has no loves has no woes, no sadnesses. That may be true, but he also has no loves. I am a rock, I am an island, a rock never cries, an island feels no pain, perhaps, but we're not rocks. We're made in the image of God. And if you surrender yourself to Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, then he, he lovingly breaks down those barriers of your heart to give himself for you. And then you can start to love others. Don't delay. Uh, this is a, a slightly sad poem, but I think it does make the point. And I don't want to end on a sad note. You should never do that as a preacher. But um, it, it's a poem from, I think it makes the point because it was written in the mid-20th century by um, a famous, at the time, famous New York celebrity. And I think it shows both the challenge of friendship and how we have lost something we need to regain. He was called Charles Hanson Town. He wrote this, Around the corner I have a friend in this great city that has no end. Yet days go by and weeks rush on, and before I know it a year is gone. And I never see my old friend's face, for my life is a swift and terrible race. He knows I like him just as well as in the days when I rang his bell and he rang mine. We were younger then, and now we're busy. Tired men. 
tired with playing a foolish game, tired with trying to make a name. Tomorrow, I say, I will call on Jim just to show that I'm thinking of him. But tomorrow never comes, and tomorrow goes, and the distance between us grows and grows. Around the corner, yet miles away, here's a telegram, sir. Jim died today. And that's what we get and deserve in the end around the corner, a vanished friend. I say it's a slightly sad poem, but I have it here at the end to try and encourage us to seize the day relationally. To think through who are the people that you can have an influence over, with, for the sake of the kingdom of God. To come to the Messiah, the anointed king, yourself today, that you might have your heart softened so you can begin to have real friendships in our so fragmented and isolated world. There is a king and there is a kingdom. And I know the Quakers, the movements of the Quakers, there are people who are fans of them and people are not, and there are all sorts of complicated theological things related to it, but I, I've always liked the way they describe themselves, a society of friends. That's a good description for the church, isn't it? Let's pray together. Lord God, I do pray that you would give us increasing healthy friendships here as a church and with those around us who don't yet know you, that you might use our friendships for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you are the loving King. And in your kingdom, uh, we can be renewed by your Spirit. We pray you would soften our hearts, that we might uh, have healthy spiritual Spiritually healthy friendships for your glory, and in Jesus' name we ask, amen.